Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. And this will be the final episode of, of, of I guess, season two of the HP Lovecraft Book Club, or series two, however you want to think about it. Um, next episode, we will be beginning a look at Lovecraft stories from 19, that were published, were written from 1921 until 1924. Um, so that essentially, that's pretty much, maybe some of these were published in 1920, actually. Yeah, I think it's 1920 to 1924. Um, so that will include everything from like uh, Cats of Ulthar um, and the Temple, those type of stories, to the Shunned House. I think the Shunned House will be the last one we look at. I think that may have been the only one he published in 1924. A bunch of stories, though, in 1920, 21, and, and 22. Uh, Rats on the Wall will be a highlight of that series. Herbert West, Reanimator, uh, The Music of Eric Zahn. A lot of great stories. I'm really looking forward to jumping into that that set of, of stories. So that will be season three. Um, you can check out a H.P. Lovecraft bibliography to know exactly what you'll be getting. But yeah, so it'll be everything from 1920 to, to 1924. Um, so, uh, what to talk about today then uh, in this episode? Well, we're going to finish up uh, his poetry. Um, and there's a few poems published, you know, roughly till 1920 that I didn't look at, a few short ones, but I, I've done the main ones and I think I've, I've kind of thematically more or less exhausted, or I will have thematically exhausted um, his, not only his poetry, but I think all of his non short story writings from the early part of his career. Um, but there are some holes um, and there's going to be a lot. And, and if they're worth filling, if there's holes that you think are really worth filling, something I missed or, or something that's really important or a very clear statement of some of his, his opinions, whether it's an article, whether it's one of his poems that I missed, whether it's um, some column he wrote or a, a letter uh, that, that I haven't been able to look at because I don't have the, those early letters in front of me. Um, you know, the selected letters, volume one, I don't have. I was able to work off my notes for that episode. But, um, you know, if, if there's something that I'm really missing, you know, let me know what it is and send it to me. And I'll come back and I'll amend this this um, kind of season two of, of the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Um, all right, so uh, let's let's jump in. So the 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 poems I'm going to look at today are really all about uh, his history, uh, World War One politics. So um, these are things I've already had a whole episode about his World War One writings, his his um, nonfiction writings. This kind of feeds off of that. I've talked about his Anglophilia when we looked at Polaris, when we looked at um, the Samuel Johnson story. I looked at his World War I writings. There was a lot about his Anglophilia there. So, you know, that's, we've, you know, so I think you know where I'm going to go in, in these, um, in, with these poems. Um, now, one thing he's very clear about is pacifism in a couple of these poems. And, you know, we'll have to break down his view of pacifism and where he, where he's right, where he's wrong, and where he's kind of, you know, maybe a bit of misguided. 
there. So, anyways, we'll start right away with uh, uh, his pacifist war song. This was uh, written in 1917, sorry, 1917, published in the tryout. Um, I think this is actually in my uh, public domain, complete works of H.P. Lovecraft, complete poetry volume that I printed out. Um, it's under satire. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'll call it satire. Uh, he he's quite serious it seems here. Um, it's sarcastic maybe. So maybe in that sense it is. Anyway, it's called a pacifist war song, and so he he introduces the pacifist quote: "We are the valiant knights of peace who prattle for the right. Our banner is of snowy fleece inscribed: too proud to fight." So that's his initial view of the of the pacifists. So this is a, it's kind of written in a, as a, like a patriotic song or something, or, or a war song, but it's all a bunch of cowards in Lovecraft's view. Uh, so he doesn't, th he thinks pacifism is essentially a form of cowardice, and he thinks pacifism will leave the whole world easily conquered and tyrannized by, by others. And these are things I'm, I'll talk about, uh, in I'll give you my full opinion on this in a little bit. But in the third stanza here, he kind of makes this point, essentially, that if everyone's a pacifist, what's to stop some vile force from overrunning us? Quote, when Prussian fury sweeps the main, our freedom to deny of tyrants' laws, we never complain, but gladly comply. We do not fear the submarines that plow the troubled front foam. We scorn the ugly old machines and safely stay at home. They say our country's close to war and soon must man the guns, but we see not to struggle for. We love the gentle Huns. Um, there's a little bit on race here. I mean, he uses the language of Huns. He uses, he one time um, uses the term greaser bands, hireling greaser bands, uh, which is a reference to the, to the Zimmerman telegram. Um, if you've studied the reasons the United States entered World War I, uh, mostly has to do with unrestricted submarine warfare and its impact on U.S. shipping, also banking interests and things like that. But there was the famous Zimmerman telegram in which Germany basically sends a, a, a letter to, or a telegram to Mexico. It gets leaked. And the telegram essentially said, like, if you join the war and you end up fighting the U.S. and we win, you can kind of have what you lost in the Mexican War back. It's kind of fantasy. You know, no one really in Mexico, I think, really took it seriously. But it, it became a, a, a tool to kind of say, oh, look, the Germans have these kind of plans against us. Um, so... The hireling greaser bands is language uh, Lovecraft uses here. It's not um, quite nice. But um, anyways, this is a criticism of World War I era pacifism. Now, my, you know, unless, like Lovecraft's never made a clear argument why the U.S. should be involved in the war at all. I, I talked about this in a previous episode. I mean, by 1917, he sort of, comes up with this, well, there's the Anglo-American solidarity, right? That's the reason we should join. Um, previously, it's kind of like, well, if you're a man, you fight, and, and it's cowardly not to fight. Here he kind of picks off of like a lot of just general propaganda that was going on there, pro-war propaganda that was used to kind of encourage people to support the war for everything from you know, those, the submarines to the Huns, the, 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 you know, that's this idea that the Germans are going to try to conquer the world. 
you know, and the, the greaser band stuff. This is all pretty gross, and it's not very creative, and it's not very good. Um, it is simply Lovecraft preaching to a conservative audience, because those are the types of magazines and newspapers he published in, you know, punching down, really, because who was most supportive of, the, of pacifism? It was like the working class movement, the IWW. These are groups that Lovecraft doesn't think much of, obviously, um, but I, I do, so I'm... I'm, I understand what was really driving the anti-war movement. And it wasn't cowardice. It wasn't this desire to be, you know, submissive in the face of, of a conquest from Germany. It was a legitimate critique of, of the goals of the war, both their original goals, but also, you know, the deep in you know banking interests that the u.s had in britain right there, there's a good argument to be made that a, one of the major reasons the u.s joined the war was to defend those loans that you know because if britain had lost the war those loans probably would never would have been paid back the, the u.s wasn't loaning incredible amounts of money to germany so there's no reason to defend that i mean that's that's that was the wobbly critique and then the fact that the working class was seen as soldiers just to be consumed on the front lines there's that famous uh cover for, of the masses which was a leftist uh newspaper at the time which has this big strong guy without a head and uncle sam looks at him and says ah the perfect soldier uh, that is how the working class was was seen in in during world war one as just a fodder for the for the trenches um certainly in europe too it's not just the u.s thing but yeah his depiction of the pacifist here is really stupid and dumb, I think. But anyways, enough about this poem. I've wasted too much time on it already. So the, the next one I wanted to look at is called An American to Mother England. This was written in January 1916, published in Posey uh, in January 1916. And um, this is just a bit of a review of what we've already talked about with Lovecraft's Anglophilia. Um, Certainly, he wrote a lot in 1917 about this Anglo-American Atlantic connection. And just to recap, it seems his view is that the American Revolution was, well, the United States is first an extension of, of Anglo-Saxon civilization in the New World. Its institutions, its culture are largely an extension of that. The American Revolution was an unfortunate break in that tradition, and there was an inevitable uh, reconciliance between Americans and the British. And World War I becomes that moment in which uh, kind of through an alliance, you get that kind of reunification, right? So the American Revolution is something he sort of regrets and thinks, you know, kind of leads to some of the later problems that, that the United States faced. And I always thought his kind of nostalgia for the 18th century pretty ironic because Lovecraft has so much anxiety about immigration, about race, about cultural diversity. In the 18th century, as some historians now call it, you know, the first global century, right? And largely due, or in large part, anyways, due to the British Atlantic Empire, you know, the, the slave trade, the establishment of slave societies across the Caribbean, uh, migration, not just of, of British, but of Germans, of Jews, of of, of various Britons, Irish and, and Scots coming to the Americas. Very, very diverse. You know, look at Pennsylvania or New York in 
the colonial period, not just Anglos. The South, of course, you had this strong African um, and later on African-American presence. So it's, it's, it's a weird century for him to idealize um, because it, it looks very much like the early 20th century in that same kind of uh, concerns about race, uh, a growing diversity on that. Okay. Anyways, well, we got this poem called An American to Mother England, and it's not hard to guess what we're going to see. Um, here's what he writes. England, my England, can the surging sea that lies between us tear my heart from thee? Can distant birth and distance dwelling drain thy ancestral blood that warms the loyal vein? I love my fathers hear the filial song of him who sources but to thee belong. World conquering mother by thy mighty hand was carved from savage wilds my native land. Um, and I think I quoted that before in a previous episode. But that's... Uh, all, everything I just sort of said is is is, is 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 condensed in that stanza. So it's kind of presented as a bit of a, a love letter almost in the in the language. Um, and then uh, you know, then then after talking about that origin um, and the fact that thy just laws, the younger Republic grew, he's saying it's by your traditions that this republic was made. Uh, forgetting that there was a revolution uh, that was a political revolution. Um, but regardless, um, you know, and, you know, Saxon liberty, all this stuff. I mean, he really almost denies there is such, really an American revolution uh, in the sense that it created new institutions. But anyways, and then he asks, then he talks about the problems that have come, alien crew coming in, mongrel slaves crawl hither to partake of Saxon liberty. Really, uh, you know, silly stuff here. And then he, then Lovecraft asks Britain to be part of creating a new Columbia. So he's asking for this kind of re reunification, right? And then the poem ends with this, uh, from British bodies, minds, and souls, I come, and from them draw the vision of their home. Awake, Columbia, scorn the vulgar age that, by, that bids thee slight thy lord, lord, lordly heritage. Let not the wide Atlantic's wildest waves burst the blessed bonds that favoring nature gave. Connecting surges twixt the nations run, our Saxon souls dissolving into one. So that's the this love letter to England. It's, we're one, we were broken. Since we separated, bad things happened to me. Now we should go back together, right? It's kind of like a post-breakup uh, pleading letter to, a, to an ex-girlfriend, right? It's like, oh, we were so great together. And ever since you left me, you know, I'm homeless. I lost my job. I'm miserable. Please come back to me. Uh, and then we'll be one again and everything will be great. That's the story we get in this, um, this poem, An American to Mother England. All right, what's next? Ah, The Rose of England. Around the same time, October 1916, published in The Scot uh, in October 1916. So this one's only two short stanzas, so I'll read the whole poem for you. Uh, starting now, um, at morn the rosebud greets the sun and sheds the evening dew, expanding ere the day is done in bloom of radiant hue. And when the sun his rest hath found, rose petals strewn the garden round. 
Thus that blessed isle that owns the rose from mist and darkness came, a million glories to disclose and spread Britannia's name. And ere life's sun shall leave, the blue England shall reign the whole world through. So this is a straight up praising of, of the British Empire being symbolized by this, the roses that are flourishing, the roses flourishing in the garden um, that together spread Britannia's name. You know, you know, whatever. The garden is the world. The roses are, are little parts of the British Empire. And there you have it. Um, the Rose of England. Not a very good poem. I, I guess I don't like this, slave, this kind of slavish, you know, worshipping of Britain. I, I don't get it. It's part of Lovecraft I just don't grok. I'm sorry to say. It's, it's kind of gross for me. I don't know. Let me know what you think about it. Um, so next we have the Peace Advocate. Uh, this is another kind of satire of, of, the, of the pacifist. It was written in May 1917, published in the tryout in May 1917. So notice this is two months after the pacifist war song, same journal, um, same theme. So I'm sure the people reading the tryout would have been uh, I don't know if they would have been bored by Lovecraft, but he doesn't say anything new here. Um, it's a different style, though. So this one, The Peace Advocate, is it's more of an, a story. It's more of a story. The other one was, was a, a satire of, of the war song of the pacifist. This is um, the pacifist, but it, it's more of a narrative here. So we're given the story of the vicar, who's our pacifist, um, you know, who... He, it's, he's, we're told he sheds tears of woe for the victims of war and all that. This is his, his, his kind of bleeding heart. Um, but, quote, ne'er a hand for his king raised he, for he was a man of peace. And he cannot, a wit, and he cared not a wit for victory. That must come to preserve his nation free, end quote. So he has this bleeding heart, but he's not willing to raise a hand to fight for it. Um, and he's, it's worse than that. We're told on the next stanza that his own son, you know, died in the battle. Like his son buckled the sword. And first at the front he was. Uh, well, it's not clear he died. But yeah, I don't think he died. It's not said here he died. But he's just, he ignores the nobility of his son and kind of scorns it. He doesn't, he can't even live up to his own son's bravery. So, um... Then we then the war comes to the vicar's own town. Quote, one day from the village green, hard by, the vicar heard a roar of cannons that rivaled the anguish cry of the hundreds that live but wish to die, as the enemy rode them over. He sees his own cathedral shake. So um, the war comes to him. His daughter and wife are terrorized by this. Uh, two shots actually kill his wife and daughter. Um, quote, and the vicar, too maddened by far to think, rushed boldly onto death's vague brink with the, with the manhood he has found. And then he, he rushes into battle then. He's finally found his manhood. And he, he's, he would be killed, but he's saved by his son, who is, who's kind of come into the breach. And, and that's that. 
And that's the, the story. So, you know, I guess the implication here is had he fought in the first place, maybe the war would never would have came to his hometown and killed his wife and daughter. I don't find that very plausible. It's, I guess it's a bit allegorical here. This isn't really set in any kind of World War I geography. Um, but obviously the argument being that pacifism will make us all easily victimized by tyranny, right? And there are those pacifists. There are these, I guess, hardcore pacifists who never believe in taking a life no matter what, even to the point of not defending themselves. But I, I reckon that's a very, very small minority of people who are opposed to war. Here, here's where I want to make my statement about this. The pacifist movement, or at least the anti-war movement during World War I, had clear political goals. I mean, it opposed the war for political reasons. It opposed it on grounds that it was an unjust war, right? Not just because these people were for peace and, and, and were cowards, as the way Lovecraft presents them in these two pacifist, anti-pacifist poems he writes, he wrote. And yes, I, I guess there are those, those, but I don't see many of them, right? It's, you know, people are opposed to war usually because they disagree with the goals of the war, the forces behind it, they're against the military industrial complex, they're against empire or whatever, right? And that was the case during World War One, right? Uh, and many of those same people who maybe are against war are very much willing to defend their homes, to, to defend themselves from various types of oppression. In fact, that is one reason they oppose war is part of their self-defense against what they see as a repression. So it's actually incredible bravery that's involved. I mean, people went to jail, like Eugene Debs was put in jail for a couple years for advocating that people don't serve. You know, these, these aren't cowardly folks. And I think Lovecraft just totally straw mans them by, with these two stories, uh, these two poems. So I don't like them. Um, maybe they're your cup of tea, I don't know. It's part of Lovecraft, though, and it's part of, of how we ought to think about him. I, I think it's part he can't see behind his, beyond his Anglophilia. But as I talked about in a previous episode, he didn't start from a position of, of we should be reunited with England, therefore we should fight in the war. He started from a position of you're basically a weakling coward if you don't fight. And if there's a war, we should fight it without ever clearly saying this is why we should fight. I, I looked at what he wrote in 1916 about the war and I made the case. I just don't see, you know, why Lovecraft thinks this is a worthy cause to fight outside than just that we should fight it because it's, it's how we prove we're men. That is why I, I think there are kind of quasi-fascist ideas here, like this focus on will, focus on violence, focus on war. It, it's very much in Lovecraft's head. Here. And it's not pretty. It's just kind of stupid. And, you know, when you contrast these ideas with some of his really more brilliant ideas, it it just really looks bad. And anyways, I don't want to talk more too much more about this. Um, next. Ode for July 4th, written July 1917, published July 1917 in the United Amateur, another amateur journal. So I'll be quick about this one. This is, I think this is one of his better kind of bootlicking uh, 
the English king kind of uh, statements. Because uh, it, it does, it is in the context of the U.S. entering the war on the side of Great Britain. And in the, you know, during what does this mean on the 4th of July, right? What does the 4th of July mean at a time when we're now allies, formal allies with the ones we were celebrating and having overthrown, right? Quote, buried now are the hatreds of subject and king and the strife that once sundered an empire hath vanished with the fame of the Saxons in heaven shall rise and the vultures of darkness are baffled and banished and the broad British sea of our enemies free. Shall in tribute bow gladly Columbia to thee. Um, so his idea seems to be that this is the first step in some kind of reconciliance, a reunification of this Anglo-Saxon civilization. And so he doesn't discredit the Fourth of July and say that was like the American Revolution was a big mistake. Um, he almost kind of presents it here as something necessary. Um, but he focuses not too much on that. He focuses instead on how the, that's we've entered a new stage of this relationship with Great Britain through the through joining the war together. So he it's it's more just the American Revolution is not really talked about directly in the in the poem at all, except it's just obliquely, just one line really. Once defied a proud monarch and built a new nation, that's, that's all he really has to say about it, and the rest is about what it, what is going to mean in the future, kind of a. I think it's 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 an interesting challenge for Lovecraft here to do this, and he he kind of he tones down a little bit of the the bootlicking um, that he does, but it, it still seems that what's going to come out of this it's going to be a British, it's going to be a, a revived British Empire of which the United States would be a part, um, and of course historically what happens is yes you do get this Anglo-American alliance, but it's it's a U.S. alliance, it's a U.S. dominated thing. Um, so next we have the conscript written 1918 uh, question mark um, not finally published till 1917 it seems in a winter wish um, an edited work um, I guess we think it's 1918 because of World War One imagery uh, I'm not sure but and this one's kind of good I, I, I like this one a little bit more um, we're, we're told our, our conscript is a peaceful working man, not wise or strong, um, follows nature's plan in labor, rest, and song. So he's just your regular working class Joe, doesn't really read the newspaper, just does his thing, basically a peaceful person. This is kind of not the pacifist because he goes to war, he does his duty, but he's, he's just, you know, he's just a good guy, right? And then... That he's told you, quote, you must write your name upon a scroll of death. Kind of nice uh, way of describing it. And there's some kind of reality here about the nature of war. That war is about death. And Lovecraft in his previous World War I stuff doesn't talk about it in this way. That's, it's a bit different. In fact, if I had read this not knowing it's Lovecraft, I would say maybe this isn't Lovecraft. Because it doesn't sound like what Lovecraft was writing about the war in other places. Which was much more rah-rah, kind of let's go. Um, and here's what our narrator says. I hate no man, and yet they say that I must fight and kill, that I must suffer day by day to please a master's will. It's almost like an anti-war poem at, the, at this point. I used to have a conscience free, but now they bid it rest. They've made, me, they've made a number out of me, and I must ne'er protest. 
They tell of trenches long and deep filled with the mangled slain. They talk till I can scarcely sleep, so reeling is my brain. And he gets more, he starts, he gets more about the horrors of war and a few more stanzas. And the day of him going there comes closer and closer. Quote, each date the state prepares something I feel is watch. Sometimes I feel a watching thing that stares and stares and stares. Um, he can't sleep. And then the final stanza, he's given no choice but to laugh at his fate. Uh, and that's how the poem ends. This is really, really kind of a profound, almost verging on anti-war poem. And it doesn't seem like anything else he wrote in 1916 and 1917 about the war. And I'm kind of tempted. I really wish I had those letters so I could take a closer look to see if his opinion about the war changed by 1918 or 1919. I'm not sure. I haven't seen other evidence of that. So if anyone knows... Uh, of this change, but this does seem to suggest a change, a little bit of bitterness about it. And, and again, it's it kind of stands up as a decent anti-war uh, poem, or at least uh, at least a poem that's sympathetic to the to the plight of the disinterested conscript, who's fa facing the reality of his possible death and the horrors of the battlefield. All right, uh, one more poem to talk about here. It was published in The Coyote in January 1917, written in May 1916. It's called Lines on General Robert Edward Lee. Um, and I don't want to say too much about this just because I'm not too interested in, in promoting any poem that, that praises Robert E. Lee. Um, but, um, you know, obviously at the time, we should, I mean, if we reread books like... Uh, uh, Race and Reunion, which is a really great uh, book about the historiography of the Civil War uh, in the early 20th century. We're reminded that at the time of Lovecraft's life here, you know, the, the war became remembered less, except for African-Americans who continue to remember it this way, it became remembered less as a revolution against a slaveocracy and a, and a planter class, and instead as kind of an unfortunate spat between brothers with honor on both sides and you get that kind of kind of argument about this um so and this of course had really horrendous consequences for african americans and, and the legacy of reconstruction and you had that whole generation of historians who looked at reconstruction as as a horrible period of oppression and and misrule and giving too much power to black people essentially was the problem for, for the historians who looked at it. And of course, you had W.E.B. Du Bois, Black Reconstruction in America, who argued against this and said, no, obviously, Reconstruction was a revolution. The Civil War was a, a profound uh, revolutionary moment that was perhaps squandered, uh, but not, it wasn't a failure and it wasn't a misguided attempt. It was really a, a moment, a chance to remake America. Um, but this had been set aside as race relations got worse, Jim Crow got established, and part of the propaganda that backed that up was uh, a, a, a resurrection of the lost cause ideology and, and, a, and a pushing this idea that the Civil War was a spat between brothers, right? And so Lee then can be someone who can be honored and celebrated North and South, and that's, that's obviously what uh, Lovecraft is doing here in the first half of the poem. Uh, he writes here, um, The South her soul and body form discerns, the North from Lee a nobler freedom learns. So, um, 
you know, Lee is like the soul of the South and from the North can learn about a nobler freedom from Robert E. Lee, a slaveholder and someone who fought to defend a state based on slavery. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I, that's why I went through the context here that you know, Lovecraft's not entirely to blame for this, these, these stupid ideas about Robert E. Lee. They were in the air. They're around and it's not impossible to believe that a, a well-educated, well-read person, you know, would buy into this. So we have a lot here uh, about the old story about his, his conflictedness between serving Virginia and serving in the United States and his choice to serve his native land, all that horse shit. I don't care how divided he was. He still fought to defend slavery and was a slaveholder himself. Ah, what else? Uh, yeah, then we get some more England stuff here in this poem, which is um, interesting, um, where he kind of puts Lee uh, as a possible one of these Anglo-American unificationists. Quote, to all our Saxon strain as well belong courage like his, he, his the parent island one, and let an empire pass the setting sun to realms unknown our laws and languages bore. Raised England's banner on the desert shore, crushed the proud rival and subdued the sea. For years past and eons yet to be, from Scotia's hilly bounds, the pagan rolls, the African's distant cape greatly extols. So, um, obviously, Lee didn't go to these places. He didn't conquer the British Empire. The, the point here is, Lee's kind of memory and legacy is spread around the world via the British Empire, because who in the Anglo-American Anglophone spear wouldn't honor this guy? But whatever. Whatever, Lovecraft. Sometimes. Um, yeah, and that's what I want to say. I just think it's, it's, it's kind of important. It's relevant that he wrote this poem and he connects it to the British Empire. And we get that same kind of uh, conversation about Britishness in the, in the British Empire in a, in a poem about Robert E. Lee. All right, so I think I've talked about every uh, thing I've printed out in preparation for this series. Um, it's one of the symphony I just skipped. Because I guess I didn't have much to say on it. One on science. I should have talked about this in the astronomy chapter called Merlinus Ridividicus. Ridividus. So that's, um, quote, in humanity's age-long struggle for emancipation from the ignoble chains of superstition, no re retarding influence has been more potent than that of national distress. The inevitable result of the Great War or social crisis is to cloud the atmosphere for rational perception. So this was written in 1919, and he's saying that's the danger of war. Is it pushes away from um, objectivity and rationality. And if we look at the world and the rise of fascism, there might be some uh, truth to that. Or if we, you know, we're in the middle of this crisis now as I'm recording this, this coronavirus crisis. Um, he kind of swims this back, you know, and it's, it, it sometimes produces bad ideas. And I, I think there's something to that. Now, Lovecraft in this little essay, though, uh, probably published in The Conservative, um, 
you know, he, he kind of gets back to race. He can't help but going back to race when talking about this. He says, however general may be the relapse of the world into medieval credulity, it is to be hoped that Anglo-Saxon sense and conservatism may exempt our particular realm from so pitiable an intellectual debacle. So, you know, our race can weather this turn towards irrationality. Um, so anyways, I think that's enough. I think it's enough about the poems, enough about his other writing from the time. But again, if any of you have, a big, have noticed a big hole, you know, everything up to 1919, 1920, any of Lovecraft's writings that I missed, uh, I, God forbid I've, I missed a short story. I don't think I did. But if there's any other writings, an important letter that I didn't, wasn't able to look at in detail, if you can get it to me, an article in the in, in the conservative, uh, a, a poem that's important. Anything I you think I, I should have mentioned but didn't, uh, let me know. My goal here is to be as complete as possible in my coverage of, of Lovecraft's writings, without being odious about it. Um, but if not, that's going to put an end to season two of the HP Lovecraft Book Club. So I'll be taking a little bit of a break, and then. Uh, coming back and jumping right into more stories, 27 of them, I think. Um, all the stories published from 1920 to 1924. I'm really looking forward to that. Some of my favorite short, short stories, I mean, short Lovecraft stories are in that, um, written in that period of time, like Rats on the Wall, uh, The Shunned House, the, um, the Music of Eric Zahn is great, um, Cats of Ulthar is fun. A lot of great stories um, in that period. So I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are too. So uh, I will see you then. Um, but yeah, let me know what you think. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com.